Hey there, this interview was recorded on the 3rd of July and was released on the 17th of August in 2020. At around 20 minutes into the interview, Dr. April Armstrong was asked about the billing of telehealth in Australia and referred to the removal of a requirement for clinicians to have an existing relationship with patients to allow them to bill for Medicare for telehealth under the MBS. Shortly after we recorded the interview, those rules were amended. So, at least at the time of releasing this episode, it's now a requirement for doctors to have an existing relationship with patients to allow them to bill for telehealth under Medicare. The answer that April gave to that question is still very relevant, as it speaks to all the reasons why she and many other doctors around Australia feel like it's such an important issue. All the other discussion points in the episode are very relevant at the time of releasing and super interesting if I do say so myself, so I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to Talking Health Tech. My name is Peter Birch, and this is a podcast of conversations with key players and influencers to promote innovation and collaboration for better healthcare enabled by technology. With me today is Dr. April Armstrong, a rural GP with a passion for business. April's the CEO of Business for Doctors, a social network and business advisory firm for Australian clinicians to help them run a better business. In addition to that, she owns two medical practices, has won a bunch of awards and invested in various initiatives supporting healthcare. She also actively supports medical students and overseas trained doctors during their transition into the Australian medical system. And she joins me here today. April, how are you? Hello, I'm very well, thank you. Good. Whereabouts are you at the moment? I am in sunny Broome, northwest Western Australia. It's about 31 degrees and I'm escaping the winter southern weather and the ice chips of the Kalgoorlie mornings where I head back on Monday. Holy dooly. It's, uh, there's no ice chips here in Sydney, but it's, uh, it's certainly not 31 degrees. You've certainly got the, the better end of that deal. Enjoy it, that's for sure. Hey, look, Absolutely. there's probably a wide range of, of topics we can cover today, so I'm really keen to just get stuck in and see what we learn. Let's just start from the top, April. What's the April Armstrong story? H- how did you get into to medicine? Well, my story is a bit of a unique and an unusual one, but in summary, I left home at 15 and went to work on a farm and then went through farm school. So I did year 11 and 12 through an agricultural school. Then I got married, or actually I had a baby, then I got married, then had another baby and then had another baby and (laughs) then got divorced and decided I wanted to go to medical school, but I needed to go back into year 11 and 12. So I went back to regular high school when I was 30 and I had a bit of a good background in business. I'd had my own businesses. I'd worked in banking and finance. I'd worked in the sales, marketing, And my last job before I started study, I was working as a debt collector for a private investigator and doing international skip tracing. So really broad background before going into medicine. I didn't expect that one. (laughs) I knew little bits of that story. I didn't know that one about the skip tracing, but that was uh, almost... Well, being a doctor is a bit like being a private investigator and a skip tracer is much the same. You've got to ask the right questions to the right people. You're kind of investigating and trying to discover what's going on when you're a doctor. So the, the PI work and the skip tracing actually was good for being a doctor. Interesting. So tell us a bit more, fill in the gaps of of what you do now. What keeps you busy today, April? Uh, Today, I've been doing some volunteer work this morning for a medical practice in New South Wales. I volunteered myself for eight weeks to be their business manager while their principal was away on bereavement leave. So that's been a pretty tough gig this last couple of months. I'm working on my Masters of Women's Health. I'm doing a research project for my Acrim Fellowship because I am still a GP registrar and I've just got to sign off that last little piece of paper 
to get my fellowship with the college. So I've got a project that I'm working on accessing fertility services in rural and remote Australia. So a research project on how to create materials and education services for GPs right across Australia to help them better manage people with fertility issues. And what else did I do this morning? Oh, and I did, of course, my own practice work as well. So I paid some bills for Collins Street Surgery and spoke to my bookkeeper this morning. Wow. Keeping still in the uh, in the thick of it, even while in, in sunny broom, that's pretty interesting. Hey, business for doctors. So that's kind of your baby, another baby that you mm. <laughs> and that's been and that's been running for, for quite a while. Tell us a bit more about Business for Doctors. So Business for Doctors is an online social media platform that ended up becoming its own business. It's caters for all medical practitioners from all specialties and through all walks of life. So whether they're a final year medical student right through to the year they're retiring or even some doctors who have retired. And people from all parts of Australia and New Zealand. And we also have about 1,200 doctors from the UK who are planning to come to Australia and they prep about the Australian healthcare system by being on our page and learning more about the business side of being a doctor in Australia. The project actually started because I won the Telstra Business Awards in 2015 and I was talking to my doctor friends about KPIs, business investments, property, Mm. all the things I was really interested in. And they had looked at me with this really blank face, absolutely clueless. And I need to help you guys. I need to show you how to invest your money and how to protect yourself from bad advice. So I created a Facebook page and I invited those 30 people. And I think all 30 of them are still on our page, actually. And from those 30 people, the momentum started. It was just a really slow start. We started off with 30 in September 2015. Uh, July 2016, we had 1,000 members. And at that point in time, I was posting three times a week, just articles from the Australian or the Australian Financial Review. And we decided that at that point in time that I wanted to hold a conference. I wanted to bring all the best business minds and people we could trust together, as well as a few doctors who were entrepreneurial and really good at business all the latest tech gear, all the things that you could do to digitalize your practices, to streamline processes and save money and put that into a conference. And that's where BFD 17 was created from. By the time we started the conference in May, end of May, 2017, we had 5,000 members. And from that point on, I worked very, very hard on the background to build the business from that point forward. That's unreal. And so, so where is that? Is it just on all happening on the Facebook group? Is that what essentially where it's all kind of the hub of the activity? And then you've got all the other kind of things that bolt onto that as well? Yeah, it's a closed group to doctors only. We have somewhere between 28,000 and 125,000 posts and comments a month. So we've got a 97% engagement. And when COVID what? started, it was just through the roof. It was insane. Um, 97% engagement. That's Yeah, it is. It's unheard of. Facebook contacted me and asked me how I did it. They wanted to know what my secret was. (laughs) What is that Uh, secret then? I think that's probably going to be the main question. um, Well, that's a really good question. First of all, I think that the information that we provide on the page is always relevant. We have very strict rules around posting and I've got an amazing administration team of doctors who are volunteers. They're not paid. They monitor the page with me because I can't do 50,000 posts I do about 20 on my own, but I can't do 50 on my own. And we have rules that say what you can and can't post because it has to be relevant to business. Mm. And 
the page is actually used to be very heavily moderated, but it's very self-moderated now. I also feel that we offer value that no one else has offered in the past. So we offer something that's very unique. Our motto or our mission statement basically is sharing and collaborating knowledge between health professionals. Mm. So helping each other and understanding where we're coming from. I feel that's been something that's really been missing in medicine and that's the, the niche that we've filled and we've filled it very, very well. Good on you. Like what are the things that are talked about on that platform? What are the topics that you see are the most common for, for GPs or for doctors in general? Okay. Yeah. So all doctors. So tax, what kind of things are who are you using as your tax agent, mm. you know, things about claiming kilometres on your car, where should I invest money? We, we're not allowed to give investment or financial advice, but we're allowed to share our personal experiences. Like I, I love property and I'm pretty much up on a lot of property investments at the moment, so I'm happy to share what I know. Some people are good on the stock market. We talk about superannuation, life insurance, income protection, medical defence insurance. We talk about private health insurance. Mm. We split off part of the group and we made frequently flying doctors, which has got 12,000 members now oh, because wow. we got so tired of everyone talking talking about credit cards and where they were flying. And I'm like, <laughs> it's not really business. So we broke off BFD into FFD. And we also have the Medical Mums Talk Money Matters as group. So this is the money group for medical mums, which has got about 5,000 medical mums. So even though we've got 28,500 doctors in our group, across social media and LinkedIn, there's about 38,000 doctors who participate in our social media platforms. That's crazy that there's that, that's, a, that's such a good platform to be involved in. And it sounds like being a closed community where doctors can feel safe to, you know, communicate that kind of stuff is is really valuable. So there's a lot of, um, to be the custodian of all of that, that's a lot of responsibility on your shoulders to maintain that integrity of the platform for sure. It, it, it's a huge responsibility. And people don't really understand that it's not just a Facebook page. We are actually a registered business. So my company mm. and myself as the director, I'm actually responsible for what happens on that page. And the integrity of that group lays with me. So it's important that we yeah. look after it. Good on you. Hey, so changing tracks, COVID, that's obviously opened up the floodgates when it comes to potential technology that's available to doctors to enable things like telehealth consultations in particular. You as a rural GP, you'd be more than familiar with the use of technology in day-to-day -day practice. And, you know, pre-COVID, that's a lot of the times how, how rural health needs to engage with you know, the rest of the health community. How do you see the landscape of telehealth playing out in Australia over the next 6, 12, 18 months? That's a really good question. I've been asked that a few times by people. There's probably how I would like it to play out and possibly how it will end up playing out might be two different things. How I'd like it to play out is like we've been using telehealth as an adjunct to our clinical practice for our rural patients by bringing clinicians to our practice through telehealth services. I'd love to see an extension of that so that I can telehealth my patients who are 30 or 40 Ks out of town so they don't have to drive in, especially people who are out on stations. That would just be fantastic to continue those services. I love being able to pick up the phone and instigate a consultation for my patient rather than having my patient book an appointment. So if I see a result come through, if I see a patient who's been to hospital for something, I can bring them up and say, oh, I've seen you've just been discharged from hospital. I'm just checking up on you, making sure you've got your meds. Do you need to make an appointment? When's your next appointment for your dressings to be done? Just doing that whole continuity of care and making sure I know what's going on. 
I love also that uh, this continues to build the relationship with other clinicians who are not only in WA, but I can engage clinicians from Sydney, Melbourne, Brisbane to assist me in providing really top quality services to our patients in Kalgoorlie. And I feel that's probably the space where we need to be focusing on in the future is accessing really good medical services for everybody if they can't get out of home because they're disabled or they can't travel for some reason or they're remote, then these are services that we should be embracing. Hmm. Interesting. And, and so if I think we, we've got a lot of technology vendors that listen to this show and, and I guess they'd be particularly interested in what your thoughts are as you've got the year of most doctors in Australia, I guess, uh, like, or at least from your opinion, what, what do you think doctors really need when it comes to technology specifically in 2020 and, and beyond? And also just as importantly, what don't they need? I think what they do need is they need to make sure they have something that's easy to use because as much as we might be relatively intelligent when it comes to medicine, we're usually not very tech savvy. So it needs to be as simple as something that my five-year-old grandson can use. He's probably a bit more tech savvy than me. I was going to say, my son's six and he uses technology better than I've seen most like 40-year-olds. So, you know, I think that's probably a pretty good bar to set. So, sorry. I, I yeah, no, my, my grandson knows how to turn the Foxtel and everything on Netflix and I've still got five remotes trying to work out <laughs> what to do. I think that making sure that it's portable so that we can actually take it with us, whatever technology we have with us, we should be able to carry with us and transport with us so that it's we're not limited to working within an office space. It needs to be compatible with all different platforms. So there's no point having a, a, a platform that you can only use, for instance, Zoom or you need to have a broad range of services that are easily accessible so the patient and the doctor can find what suits their needs the best. Cameras are really important, so really top quality cameras so you can see the patient when you're doing telehealth having the capacity to screenshot or take photos so having the patient being able to take photos and send them to you and then save them digitally um, securely so your information is secure Mm. and then you can upload those into the patient data files and and the patient medical records and even if we can upload those onto the my health record that would be fantastic as well so they're the types of things that i'd be looking at as a clinician and from a patient's perspective i think that covers most of the things that they need as well and in relation to what we don't need is we don't need things that are expensive and clunky and we don't need things that go out of date very quickly so we need to make sure that these are have some kind of longevity because as much as we look like we might earn decent money one thing we don't like doing is spending it so it's important to make sure that the technology that we get is going to hold us through for a period of time and we're going to be able to use it effectively. Mm, well, that seems fairly reasonable. So if I was then putting the hat on of a, of a doctor, what would you say are three things that an Australian doctor should be thinking about if they're considering implementing some new technology in their practice today? Okay, so new technology in a medical practice needs to be, so three things, patient focus so that means the patient needs to be able to use it easily and it needs to have the security of patient records it needs to be cost effective to use so you don't want something that's going to have ongoing daily weekly monthly expensive fees that can be jacked up at any time and then you're at the mercy of the person who you've signed a contract with or you've got all their software and data you want to have something that you know what you've got 
is a fixed cost to the practice. And much like buying a piece of equipment where I said longevity, not only longevity for the hardware, but also for the software, because training staff to use equipment is really expensive. So it's training your administration staff and reception staff to be able to utilize and set up that equipment is time consuming and expensive. So making sure that when you are doing something that it does have a time frame that you're going to be able to continue to use it for. Totally. It seems like very um, important things to look out for. That training piece is really interesting too, and it's something that's just overlooked often from a, a vendor's perspective. The appeal of having technology that hopefully will just get self-implemented in a practice can often be too much, and, and there's often those vendors that forget that the responsibility doesn't stop once you've developed and sold the thing. There's ongoing support and, and training and everything that's required, which is much more valuable than the actual selling part at the front ends. Um, Absolutely. There's so many good tech platforms out there at the moment that we're using if we can continue to have things like our our rostering schedule payroll integrated medical data and billing data that links to accounting software if we can have things where we can have security checks on people if we know that our staff have turned up for work because there's a checking counter for the staff to come in a photo or a finger id things like that streamline and integrate those processes in the practice and once everybody knows how to use them it saves us a lot of time but it also saves us a lot of errors and errors end up costing money as well as a business owner i'm always looking for something that's going to save me time but i don't want something that's going to cut corners and i want something that has a way for me to double check on it to make sure that it's working properly got it okay interesting you as a as an advocate for for rural and regional physicians what, what what do you think the biggest challenges are that are facing that cohort of passionate doctors at the moment that's a really interesting question because i'd say right today that Working and living in Kalgoorlie, I have less challenges than my friends in Melbourne. So hmm. it's been <laughs> in Melbourne, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's a very, a very interesting time for our doctors in all capital cities. Yeah. With the downturn of business, with patients not coming into their practices, the forced bulk billing of telehealth services. I'm getting calls from clinicians who live in capital cities asking me if they can do telehealth for my patients because they don't have enough work. My problem has always been I've got too much work and providing a really good service in a rural area is highly valued, which means it doesn't matter where I go to work, I've always got too many patients for myself and I always have more work than I need. From a accessing services point of view, I think we've probably been in the best position we've ever been in because all of a sudden we've got these neurologists and endocrinologists and gastroenterologists who've never used telehealth before who have literally had their hand forced into it and all of a sudden we've got access to thousands of specialist clinicians for our patients Mm. so that's been a really big upswing for us a good thing the challenges that i'm facing are more so not from a clinical point of view or from a training point of view they're more of a recruitment and staffing point of view. So while we've got things like job keepers in place, it's very hard to recruit people to come to work for you because they can sit at home and get paid for doing nothing. So we're really struggling to recruit people, especially in rural areas, it's really difficult. And I also find that the training of new staff, which is something we've just mentioned, is one of the most difficult things. And I think that's where the tech side of things could really help if we could have more online training, more Zoom meetings, more facilities for us to be able to do the 
tech training remotely, the online training for the medical software remotely, and do it very well, that's going to really help with our practices. But apart from that, I think that living in the country actually has a huge um, advantage over living in the city. That's why I live there. I, it only takes me three minutes to drive to work. I can get out of bed at 8.50 and be at work at 9 o'clock if I wanted to be. I can miss all the traffic lights in town. I don't even have to go past a set of traffic lights if I don't want to. I know people enough that I know where not to go if I don't want to see them. But if I don't mind seeing them, then I know I can go there. Like you would never go shopping at Woolworths at 5.30 on a weeknight because I would never get my shopping done. Everybody would stop me. But I know that if I go there at 8 o'clock on a Thursday night, there is nobody there. It's empty. So you pick and choose your times. Now, all, all of a sudden, everyone's going to go to Woolworths at 8 o'clock on a Thursday because that's when <laughs> so same night. I've just ruined it for you. But, but it's, it's that community spirit as well and being involved in the community. So the people who you work with, you live with, you socialise with, and you have a almost kinship for them which is very hard also as a doctor because you become very, very protective over them as well. Mm. And I, I'm like a bit of a, a tiger sometimes, like looking after the, my little cubs and making sure they're okay. So it's, it can be that, but they're all good things about living in the country. Yeah, yeah. Hey, you said something before uh, about... Did, did I sell that? Uh, All right. Is everyone going to come move to the country now? I was going to say that was a good pitch. Everyone should come move to the country. We, it's, we've always needed help out in uh, rural <laughs> and remote areas for clinicians, especially now as well. So well, I'll put April's details in there if you need more information on how to go about that. Hey, just back to then, April, the point you made about the, the forced MBS billing of telehealth. Do, do you think that the royal we has got it right when it comes to how we've approached the billing of telehealth in general and covering it under you know the mbs no there's a few mistakes there so the first thing is that i was really disappointed to see that they removed the requirement for the doctor to have a relationship with the patient and we're now fighting off corporate organizations that are edging into our space so i've got my patients thinking that they can't get hold of me for a telehealth or one of our doctors and they're calling up a random clinician who may or may not have a fellowship in general practice on the end of the phone. And it's really disappointing for some of the care that's been given to my patients. And this is across the board. But not only that, this is taking valuable business away from our rural doctors. We're already being challenged with our local pharmacies and other things happening. We don't need someone else to enter into that space and, and disjoint the care that our patients need. So that's probably one of my biggest problems with the telehealth. The second thing was I don't think it's constitutional that we should have to bulk bill people. It was never intended. Medicare was never set up that we should bulk bill people. In fact, when Medicare was established back in the 1970s, GPs weren't allowed to bulk bill. And it wasn't through until the 1980s that the bulk billing incentive was actually introduced and the GP Medicare rebates actually went from 85% to 100% of the rebate. And that's where the specialist fees stayed at 85%. And they then had the incentive to bulk bill pensioners and children. And then they introduced the additional bulk billing fee for remote areas and rural areas and disadvantaged areas. But that was to encourage people to bulk bill. It wasn't an enforced bulk billing. So no. this is the first time that we've ever been forced to bulk bill people and I actually feel that's very unfair. We're a private business and we're actually tied to doing that without consent. And I feel that often patients tend to undervalue really good medical care when they've got no out-of-pocket cost for it. It should be up to the clinician to decide whether the patient is financially in need of being bulk billed. 
and then they can decide if that patient should be bulk billed or not. Yeah, I can see that. So I didn't know that history of the MBS and the, the, how it's kind of progressed to this point. And it's an interesting decision that's been made to to get it where it is. So it'll be even more interesting to see how it plays out when there's some time for the dust to settle. But that's some interesting perspective there, April. Hey, lastly, just to round things out, BFD, Business for Doctors, what's on the horizon? What can we look forward to coming out in the future from you guys? Well, I am just in the process of writing my new MBS book because of the new rebates that have come out on the 1st of July. So I will have my MBS for general practice or the MBS item numbers plus a nice explanatory note beforehand and a chapter about the history of the MBS, hence the reason I know so much about it. We've got some private workshops coming up. So I am paid to go into people's practice and educate people on business and Medicare. So we've got a few workshops coming up in Perth. I can't cross the border at the moment. So our Mm. planning ahead is very difficult, but we have other clinicians and doctors who teach MBS and workshops for us around Australia. So we'll start doing those small group sessions soon. We've got some online training. So we've got a whole platform which will be launched under our new website called BFD Education. And I've recorded about 17 hours of education and workshops for the doctors, which they'll be able to access through there. And we have actually launched our tickets for BFD 2021 because we've had to obviously cancel 20 and we've postponed it to 21, which will be on the 26th to the 28th of February. So we've just launched that now and we're all organized. We're just looking for our final keynote speaker, which will be, I'm just kind of keeping my eyes out for that now. Yeah, cool. Is that going to be a digital or in-person or a bit of a hybrid event or not really sure or it depends? Definitely. Well, at this stage, definitely both. But you can never say definite because we're in the middle of a world pandemic and I don't expect that we'll have a vaccine by February next year. So we just have to wait and see how things pan out over the next few months or weeks and see what happens from there. It's a pretty common answer and that's pretty fair enough too. So look, April, I really appreciate your time. What I'm going to do is I'll put some information in the show notes about how people can access some of the information that we spoke about and also learn a bit more about BFD, particularly for those doctors that um, aren't already part of it and want to know a bit more. So enjoy the rest of your time away and you're still working very hard. So at least it's, it's a change in environment, not a change in kind of the doing and, and keep doing what you're doing. And I really appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Talking Health Tech. My name is Peter Birch. Make sure you go check out our website for all our resources, including this podcast and the largest directory of technology solutions available to Australian healthcare practitioners today. Until next time, I'm out of here.